We stepped into the cave that Tim and I had stumbled upon the spring before on our exploration hike. The light was almost a purplish hue, not quite prince purple, but a hue that was otherworldly and magical. Barely enough light shined in to see, but quickly our eyes adjusted to it. Once in a while, you get shown the light. We called it a cave, but in reality, it was more of an enclave. A refuge from the world in the form of a broken pillar that leaned up against the wall. It left a somewhat incomplete impression that one was protected while there. Not only it was a refuge, but also we were most likely the first humans to use it as such. An incredible gift. After basking in these sort of thoughts, I was given the sharpen. Welcome to episode eight of season two of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the climbing zine. I am Luke Mihal. In the last episode, I mentioned um, the social media platforms we're on and, and those that we're not on as well for various reasons. Um, but I didn't mention the fact that we have a YouTube channel. I don't have as much up there as I would like, but we've got several videos um, and several I'm quite proud of that have made it into film festivals, a couple that I made with Greg Cairns. And then a couple I made with Jake Birchmore. Super proud of all of those. So if you're looking for a little more visual components to go along with the storytelling, check those out. Of course, the number one way to support this podcast is to check that link in your show notes that leads to our store and pick up some merch, pick up a book, a zine, a zine subscription, or you can even pick up the Overstoker package, which has just about every product that we offer in one uh, concise package. Without further ado, let's get into episode eight. Having an eye for the desert as a climber is something that is cultivated over time. And really that third eye never stops getting more information, never stops learning. At first, it's the eye to know what size a crack is from the ground. And then it's the size of the crack when it's right in front of you. So you know what size piece to place on the first or second try. It's the eye to look at a section and know when to punch it until you can get that rest. After developing a few roots, I learned that eye keeps you safe and alive. New cracks often contain something that would get you, be that a loose flake or a block or a section where you simply couldn't get any good gear. I had 16 years of experience before we started the cave wall, but I still had so much to learn. One day, Tim, Dane, and I racked up for what we thought was going to be some low-hanging fruit. It was a perfect right-facing dihedral, probably 75 feet tall, looked like a hand crack, and basically appeared to be a walk in the park. Soon enough, I was 20 feet up, leading on the sharp end, and the crack was filled with sand and dirt. This thing is an old dirty bastard, I yelled down to Tim and Dane, only to receive a mixture of support and heckling. Not only was it dirty, but the jams in the crack had a hollow sound to them, as if the wall wasn't fully attached. I plugged cams into the crack, and it made that hollowness even more apparent. It wasn't too scary. I was in a hand crack, but something was going on that I didn't fully comprehend. I performed the ritual, reached the high point where the anchor would go, plugged some cams in, hauled up the drill bag, installed two bolts, and then began the worst part, cleaning. Before I even reached the ground, I knew in my mind this thing would be known as the old dirty bastard. As I repelled, I used a toilet brush to scrub the dirt out of the cracks. Dust covered my entire face, and I asked the boys to send up my ski goggles. I don't ski, but when I wear ski goggles, I'm usually in Indian Creek. These flakes were the biggest issue. 
It's these moments where I always start to ponder time and rain and dirt and just how long all of this has been here. I start to feel more like a bug or perhaps a lizard on the wall rather than a climber, especially when we're the only climbers around for miles. And the more I tasted that, the more I liked it. I liked my company, my best of buddies. Even though what I was doing resembled manual labor more than rock climbing, I really reveled in this situation. How many hundreds of storms pass water down the wall through this crack? How many lives of spiders and lizards did it take? Or did they just dig deeper into the crack where the rain doesn't go? And were the hollow sounds of the flake created by the constant flow of water? Sometimes I wish I were a geologist. And when I'm around a geologist, I listen. But sometimes out there, I kind of just make up my own answers upon reflection and observation, which is the start of science, I guess. But I am human, and human beings just kind of make up things as they like, as they hope or wish things would be. I started tapping on the flakes to see how easily they would come off the wall. If you're going to establish a cragging pitch with the knowledge that it will be repeated, it is your duty to ensure the person who comes along next won't encounter unnecessary death flakes and blocks. So we send them a tumbling down to join the scree field, to join in holy matrimony forever ever with the rocks and the talus below. As I tap, tap, tap on the flake, I asked Dane and Tim to clear themselves in the gear below. Chunks started to fall off with ease, and I realized what was going on. There was a six-inch layer of rock that was detached from the main wall, but still barely remained tethered on. One tap with the hammer and a section would fall off, like putting together a puzzle, but in reverse. I then regretted my decision to climb this thing that particular day, but I also realized I had a job to do. After a couple hours of labor, I called it a day, and I decided. The old dirty bastard was clean enough. God made dirt, and dirt will bust your ass, the ODB once said. Months later, after the climb had seen some traffic, I climbed it as a warm-up lap. As I was getting lowered, I gently bounced back into the wall and kicked off a five-pound chunk. With a bit of remorse, I realized I'd failed to thoroughly clean it as well as I should have. I found a hammer and spent another couple hours cleaning that bastard. While I was cleaning, Dave and Tim patiently supported my request, ranging from the hammer to the crowbar to asking that they turn up the tunes to keep my mind sane. They also dabbled in a potion we would later learn was called Purple Hate. Even though I felt like I was on the ODB forever, enough daylight still remained for another climb. And during this day, and every day the month before, and for years after, more daylight meant another first descent. We were still in the first month of this wall, and the low-hanging fruit that surrounded us exponentially. More important than that low-hanging fruit was that we had camaraderie and abundance. These guys were down for the cause. With the spirit we had, we could have established a line in El Capitan. But instead of writing a novel or recording an album, we were just writing lines of poetry, 16 bars of verse in the form of climbing lines. Dane brought an intense dedication to the craft. He was always there with enthusiasm to do what needed to be done. Tim was like a wise desert sage. He'd lived amongst this desert for many years before moving to Durango and had an instinct of what the desert was and how to read it. The desert is often another language. If one understands the language the desert is speaking, they can protect it to the best of one's abilities and capabilities. Tim knew where to put the rock in on a trail and where to clean a rock off a climb. 
Because of the Purple Haze concoction, their instincts and sensibilities for the sharp end were compromised. And, lucky me, I'd get another lead-in for the day. I'd learned from my mistake of thinking the ODB was low-hanging fruit, so I figured I'd go right for the best-looking line I could. We stepped into the cave that Tim and I had stumbled upon the spring before our exploration hike. The light was almost a purplish hue, not quite prince purple, but a hue that was otherworldly and magical. Barely enough light shined in to see, but quickly our eyes adjusted to it. Once in a while, we get shown the light. We called it a cave, but in reality it was more of an enclave, a refuge from the world in the form of a broken pillar that leaned up against the wall. This left a somewhat incomplete impression that one was protected while there. Not only was it a refuge, but also we were most likely the first humans to use it as such, an incredible gift. After basking in these sort of thoughts, I was given the sharp end. Tim and Dane were awash in a couple different forms of purple haze, but still more than capable to belay and offer everything I'd need while venturing off into the unknown. A team of three can be really key for first ascents. There was a monster refrigerator-sized block that guarded the perfect crack above. When I encounter one of these types of blocks and established routes, I approach it with caution. I also approach it with the knowledge that it's probably wedged in there firmly because other human hands and feet have passed through. But when it's a mystery, there is much more doubt and fear. The block was so large it would surely kill my belayer. It was also so large it was probably there before this land was even called the United States of America maybe even before humans arrived to this land. As I climbed up to it with a delicate disposition, I confirmed in my mind that I trusted it. It's one thing to gamble with your own life, but it's another thing to gamble with another person's life, and that carries a little more weight. I was willing, as I tapped on the block, listened to what message I thought it was carrying, pulled on it, jammed above it, and ultimately stood upon it. Fucking bomber. It was off to the races from there, and I announced the size of the crack. Perfect hands to my comrades. They were stoked, and so was I. Nothing can go quicker on a first ascent than hand jams. This episode is sponsored by Osprey. A longtime sponsor of The Climbing Zine, Osprey and The Zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home with Osprey in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado. And to find out more, visit Osprey.com. This episode is also sponsored by Black Diamond, another longtime sponsor of The Climbing Zine. Black Diamond is all about climbing, skiing, in the mountains. And, of course, the desert. Black Diamond not only has the hard goods you need for climbing, but also the apparel to go along with it. The forged denim jeans are perfect for desert climbing and exploring. And the Alpenglow hoodie layers are ideal for protecting you from the sun. To find out more, visit blackdiamondequipment.com I jammed my way into a hand crack roof that led me to a chimney and soon the left side of my body was wedged entirely in a crack with wide hand jams on my right. Although from the ground the crack looked splitter forever, like most Indian Creek cracks, it promptly ended. 
Again, the routine of hauling up the bolt bag, sinking in a couple bomber bolts, and then the ever-daunting chore of cleaning. The purple light had left and was replaced by a dim glow. The cleaning would wait for another day. Naming a climb is one of my favorite parts in the process of a new climb. Sometimes a name is in mind beforehand, but I typically find that name often doesn't stick because you don't really know a climb before you climb it. Just as you don't know a potential lover before you go on a date. But this one was set before I even stepped to it. Purple Haze, all the way. Purple Haze, I reckon, makes most people think of a Jimi Hendrix song. We are inspired by that Colorado concoction and by Jimi. Later, I'd learned that Hendrix wrote that song after a batch of LSD that Osley, the Bear Stanley, concocted in the 60s. Osley was one of those behind-the-scenes guy who was just as influential in the countercultural scene as Hendrix or Garcia. He was a financial backer of the Grateful Dead and helped pay for their infamous Wall of Sound system. Though I didn't realize it at the time, here with Purple Haze, I could have stepped out of myself and witnessed this intersection. And perhaps I'm stretching too far, but going too far is what the desert is all about for me. Not just too far, but too deep, too long, go down some forgotten wash just to see what's there, to wander in nature with one's own humanity, stay out there so long so that the essence of contemplation is what you're seeking. Be in the moment and see something so you can savor and contemplate it later. With the purple haze, or sometime around that day, I knew for sure I was on the right path. I was born to be a part of a counterculture, but more than that, I was born to be on the edge of two countercultures. Both were dangerous, but if I could stay on the right side of both, it created a safe haven for me and my wandering ADD mind. If I'd been born in the days of the Grateful Dead, I really wonder if I would have gone on an LSD trip and never came back. I was simply too open to it, but too sensitive to fully embrace it. Plus, those trips seemed to have the answers in the moment, but never in the aftermath. Climbing had something different. The aftermath always seemed the most holy, like I'd gone to church and emerged anew from the baptism. But the desert had little water for baptism. It held a renewal as old as Moses. Psychedelics opened doors to mental states I never knew were there, and I accessed some joy and mystery that I'll never really understand as long as I'm living. The space to explore is as vast as the desert. But psychedelics also gave me the worst awake nightmares, bad trips I never thought I'd be released from, terrible visions of a world gone wrong. The best of trips left me in a trance, with thought after thought of high-level thinking, or so it seemed at the time. One time I walked around my neighborhood at night with a sock in my hand, just thinking, thinking. I wish I could have recorded all those thoughts, just to see. The worst vibrations would destroy, for me, any hope that there was in psychedelics. One time I sat out alone, walking through my hometown, and the sidewalk started moving downward as I walked. A fire hydrant spoke to me. It was oh so sad, a downward spiral of vibration, that I'm still not sure why it all happened. The use of psychedelics seems the most fitting at proper ceremonies with guides. Other than a cap, I don't have much interest in them anymore because of my bad trips. I guess when I was cluelessly using them as a teenager, I should have had a guide. The insight and visions I gained have gone to the wind. What little I do remember, I think that some parallels could be drawn between the psychedelic experience and the climbing experience. Doug Robinson even wrote a whole book about it. 
I can't say I'm anti-drug, but I know there's more bad drugs than good ones. I was bound to be attracted to that spear, and some say climbing is a drug, and sometimes it feels like it. But if it is, it's the bubonic chronic, the good stuff, though it's certainly possible to have bad trips with climbing too. And sometimes, quietly and sweetly playing the Grateful Dead in the desert, I remember things, good things, and bad things. Death don't have no mercy in this land. The purple haze route was a good thing, and in that beginning era, when we were just starting the wall, we'd always have a long, strange trip ahead of us in the form of our descent. Tim was envisioning a grand climber trail that was done in the best possible way for long-term use, meaning it would still hold tough after rainstorms and windstorms and all the types of storms. I'd finally partaken in the purple haze potion, and we all giggled and spaced out together in some grand communal gesture. We would place cairns where Tim suggested, made twists and turns where Tim thought we should, and dug out steps where appropriate, always trying to minimize the busting of the crust, trying to make our path holy. With these guys, that was as fun as anything else, wandering down in the dark for what seemed like forever, thinking we'd never emerge from the slope until we hit the wash. We knew there were beers, chips, and supper in our very near future. And all was well, again, at the campfire, always and forever. That was episode eight of season two. So much fun reminiscing uh, about some good times that were only five or six years ago. The precious moments in climbing always seem so close. And then the years space them out and we realize how quickly time can go by. Music for this episode comes from Devin Dabney. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. Luke Mihal signing off from Durango, Colorado. Peace.